All right, Sublation Media people, uh, of which at the moment there are none um, watching, but uh, this is Pop the Left with Ashley Frawley and, of course, myself, Douglas Lane. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about how um, higher education has shifted from being about teaching people to have uh, critical faculties and uh, understanding and information to focus being focused on their mental health and then we'll also talk about the death of the subject maybe in the second half but ashley welcome to twitch um and and to pop the left so how are you today i'm great i'm sorry for my disheveled appearance i've literally just come back from the gym (laughs) so Mm. Sorry you know, that. when when really it really attractive people apologize for their looks, it irritates people <laughs> like me. So stop it. Um uh and I'll cut that part out, but for Twitch, that's that's live. There people will see that. Um so yeah, uh tell me about your monograph. You you've been working on it for a while. Um you sent me some uh some excerpts from it, some chapters. Um, and uh what is the title of your next book? Uh and what is it all about? So this book is um, called Significant Emotions, um, uh, and it focuses on the rise of emotions, and in particular, so-called positive emotions or positive sort of emotional orientations as panaceas for social problems. And I first conceived of this book, I think, about 2016, just after my first book came out, because I started to notice that it wasn't just, you know, my first book was on happiness. And I started to notice that it wasn't just that happiness had emerged as this social issue, as a problem in itself, and as a supposed solution to a wide range of social problems. Um, It was starting to change. Even as I published that book, I noticed that the language of happiness was shifting to the language of well-being. And the language of well-being was uh, was shifting to the language of mental health. And I had also uh, realized that prior movements, like the self-esteem movement, had kind of given way to the happiness movement in a number of ways. So I really wanted to investigate how and why that was happening, that even as one discourse um, is criticized and begins to fall away and people stop really championing it as this um, cause and solution to a a wide range of social issues, there's always another one waiting Mm -hmm. in the wings. You know, there's always something else waiting to come up. And I wanted to try to explain that. First of all, I wanted to describe how that happened in some of the uh, the process through which that happens. And then I wanted to understand what, what underlies that. So that's what this book is about. So you said that, you know, there had been earlier movements that fell away, like the self-esteem movement. Um, and it, and it's become now a, a mental health movement, but wasn't, it wouldn't mental health kind of be a broad category and self-esteem yeah. be like a subcategory of that. Yeah. So the, what I thought was initially going on was that it was just these kinds of cycles. Um, and I sort of conceived of it. Initially, I had uh, I published a few um, short papers and um, book chapters about this uh, in edited volumes. And I had conceived of it as a kind of cycle. But as I got more into it, I realized that they are not cycles. Um, then It's not just history repeating itself in each iteration. So mm. what I'm talking about are basically therapeutic fads. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, mental health seems like an umbrella term. And in many ways, it is an umbrella term. It's not something that's just come up out of nowhere. In fact, it has its heyday much earlier. Um, but uh, the way that they come into the forefront of the public imagination and begin to you know, be on the tip of everyone's tongues um, is that's their faddish kind of nature. And so although mental health has been around for a long time and it's this kind of umbrella term, the way that, you know, for instance, I noticed around 2014, all of my students were suddenly passionate about mental health, all of them, like uniformly passionate about mental health, which I found very interesting. Just, it seemed to come almost out of nowhere. And I think they were passionate about mental health in a way that, um, students probably wouldn't have said they were passionate about the happiness movement. They would have felt a bit silly saying something like that. Mm. So I think as these, these discourses, they come to the forefront of public imagination, but they fall away because they have some, um, or they give way to a new idiom because they have something about them that doesn't quite work. (laughs) So like the self-esteem movement fell victim to um, the criticism that it's too individualized it's too individual oriented and actually the problem is that people have too much self-esteem there's lots of people who just have too much self-esteem what we should really be concerned about is happiness and happiness is aristotle's understanding of a a, a, a eudaimonia and so on um and but happiness sounded a little bit frivolous so they were always kind of shifting to new keywords they would they would say well what i'm really talking about is subjective well-being and subjective well-being had a rhetorical advantage over happiness and that it had a kind of uh, a ring to it, um, a scientific ring to it. It sounded like it had, it, it sounded um, more removed from everyday life. So mm. if you had like a policymaker saying, I'm here to make you happy, people would say, <laughs> you know, it had a dystopian kind of feel to it. But if they said, we're here for the promotion of subjective well-being and we are talking to our experts in this, then they would say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Whereas if, mm-hmm. if you say, oh, we're talking to our experts in happiness, again, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't sit well. Mm-hmm. And then that I'm oversimplifying hugely because that's not the only reason why these things come up. I mean, my, my 2015 book was a detailed exploration of just the happiness movement, mm-hmm. but there's, this is one part of it. Um, and then well-being gave way to the language of mental health, which was more expansive, because in each one of these iterations, um, what people will do when they take up the discourse is they will stretch it. They will try to expand it to encompass a wider array of everyday concerns and social issues. And mental health is kind of ideal for that. Um, and in addition, there were already there was already a huge network of people in a wide range of institutions that were positioned to take up a, um, a renewed discourse of mental health. So a lot of people who had been interested in well-being, they started to talk about well-being and mental health, well-being and mental health. Um, so ha- it was happiness and well-being, happiness and well-being, and then it became well-being and mental health. <laughs> um, and then that became kind of um, this huge discourse and, and buzzword, even though it, it had already existed. There are movements in the past to politicize mental health. And actually, if you look at Google Ngram, which is a, I don't know if anyone's ever played around with it, but it's a, just a listing of all of the... Um, uh, text that Google indexes. And you can see mental hygiene, which is a for an older kind of discourse, which is very similar in a lot of ways, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, as it falls away, because mental hy- the mental hygiene movement was associated with eugenics, as it falls away, you can see mental health kind of <laughs> rises up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became a different way of talking about kind of similar, similar issues. 
Um, so it became this renewed thing, the more expansive mental health was something that, you know, affected everybody. Um, it's not just people who are ill, you know, it, it followed a similar trajectory to health where health gradually stopped being about, you know, it's just something that you have when you're not dying. <laughs> it mm -hmm. became something you have to consciously pursue. So mental health became, again, something that has to be consciously pursued. So each one of these discourses is connected in interesting ways. Um, now, I've, as I said, I, I've greatly oversimplified the process through which this happens, but um, they're connected to each other and they give way to one to the other. And each one has something over the other that um, kind of allows it to be used by more people to fill more institutional gaps. Um, and also they, they're, not, they're not just all telling the same story over and over and over again, which I thought mm -hmm. was interesting because initially that's what I thought they were doing. I thought it was just the same kind of story about social problems. Now I'm speaking a little bit like people know who I am and what, I, what I'm my research and that kind of thing. But mm -mm. the whole idea of my first book was that um, happiness became this way of individualizing very deep contradictions within capitalism. It did lots and lots of things, but that was one of the things that um, I claimed was, was happening that mm -hmm. I found particularly interesting, this area called happiness economics. And uh, I thought, well, why would economists be so interested in telling you that money doesn't make you happy? Mm. But of course, you know, your employer is very interested in telling you that money doesn't make right. you happy. Um, but also there's this stagnation within capitalism um, that needed to be explained and harmonized. And so what they were doing is they were saying, well, look, like maybe we don't need growth anymore. Maybe economic growth doesn't make you happy. Maybe we should pursue happiness instead, that mm. kind of thing. Um, so... I thought that it was just this way of individualizing social problems um, and kind of putting, um, deflecting responsibility for social issues back onto the subject, onto the individual. Um, but actually I realized that in each one, there's more pessimism. <laughs> hmm. um, because as an explanation for social problems, what emotions do is they say, the reason why things go wrong is because of some weakness within the human subject. When I say emotions, I mean emotion discourses. What mm -hmm. they frequently do is they say, well, like, like people actually said this. They're like, oh, well, maybe we wouldn't have the 2008 financial crisis if people didn't seek happiness through money and houses they couldn't afford. Yeah, like right. Mm -hmm. You know, so it became it's like, you know, mainstream economics has this idea that this whole monster exists because we demand it in the market. Right. So mm -hmm. we make mistakes subjectively by demanding the wrong things. So you can kind of change people's behaviors and get them to demand the right things, and then you can solve all kinds of problems. Um, mm. But what I noticed over time is there's this growing kind of pessimism that in each iteration of this kind of the problem of positive emotion, people become more and more pessimistic about the ability of change at the individual level to actually solve issues. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the self-esteem movement, they would say, like, oh, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything, <laughs> like, you know. And, you know, if we just change the way people feel about themselves, they're not going to have premarital sex. They're not going to have, you know, they're not going to get pregnant when they're too young. They're going to get involved in violent crime and gangs and all these sorts of things. At least there was this sense that if we do this, we will shore up the individual to not have these problems. Mm -hmm. It was wrong because that mm -hmm. wasn't the cause of problems. But at least there was this, like, this kernel of optimism. Mm -hmm. As you move along, um, the promises get more and more um, 
um, measured. So with mindfulness, you had this kind of magic bullet side to mindfulness, which was similar to the self-esteem movement. Um, but at the same time, they would say, well, it's not a magic bullet uh, uh, and it's not a solution to all problems. They would be, they were very careful about saying that. Whereas um, in the self-esteem movement, they literally said, this is a social vaccine. <laughs> this, if we, if we give people self-esteem, we will vaccinate them from future social problems. The happiness movement, again, Martin Seligman said, this will inoculate people. He used the language of inoculation in his 2002 book. Um, it will inoculate people from future issues if we teach them the true meaning of happiness when they're children and teach them to pursue happiness correctly. Mindfulness, you get more of a measured, you still have some of that. This whole like first promote X, then somehow some way this problem is gonna be solved. Um, but John Kabat-Zinn, the kind of guru of the mindfulness movement um, says that the the goal is to feel at home in the maelstrom. Mm -hmm. um, and so you start to see this with these discourse and that one discourse that I don't look at, but other people do is resilience. And it's a similar kind of thing that it's about like um, shoring up the individual to be resilient to a world beyond control. And I think this really reaches its apex in the mental health movement where you can well imagine it being like this earlier self-esteem discourse, like, oh, if we make people mentally healthy, we promote mental health, then they're not going to have these problems, they're going to get good jobs, and they're going to be rich. No, they don't say that. At least mm -hmm. not in the discourse that I'm looking at. It's more like, why do we need to look at mental health? Because the world is so messed up and there's nothing we can do about it, <laughs> basically. Right. Well, so I wanna, like it becomes more I, and more pessimistic. I, Hello, Sublation Media viewers. I'm interrupting this interview to tell you about GCAS and a seminar that's coming up with Christopher Hedges and Boris Franklin. This seminar, which will include the book Our Class Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison by Chris Hedges and the play Caged, written by the New Jersey Prison Theater Co Cooperative, will examine the transformative power of education and creative self-expression in prison. Again, that starts on, on May 2nd. It's the first session. GCAS is our only sponsor on this channel, uh, and them stepping forward to, to help us out by being a sponsor made a big difference as we came together to create Sublation Media. So I would appreciate it if you're interested in what they're doing for you to check them out. I'll put a link to GCAS in the uh, description of this video and in the show notes for the podcast, and you can uh, take a look at not just this seminar, but what they're doing overall in the coming year. I want to take a look at the kind of overall milieu this is happening within, because um, I, I, don't, I, I don't doubt that you could trace a, a kind of pessimism through all these movements, as you just did. But um, one of the things about the whole terrain um, and I'm going to call it therapy culture, but perhaps I could just call it psychology, uh, you know, um, is that it is, it kind of has a pessimistic starting point. Um, uh, and I'll just start with a personal anecdote. Like I, my, I started therapy recently, uh, had stuff happen that made me decide I could try that out. Um, and it would be worthwhile. And, and, I'm going to like a, a therapist who has psychoanalytic training. He's not a psychoanalyst, but he has, you know, educated in psychoanalysis. And he tells me that Freud believed that the range of mental states or psychological conditions ran from neurotic to psychotic, basically. <laughs> um, there's no category of sanity 
or no like undisturbed category of subjectivity within a therapeutic context, but rather like the aim is to help patients cope with the disturbance that just really is being human. Mm -hmm. um, and from my perspective, this is fine. Like it's justifiable within like a therapeutic context or a psychoanalytic context. Um, there are dangers to it because it can become like it can replace religion, I think, for people or other kind of meaning making systems. Um, but do you think this problematizing of human subjectivity, which which is I you know certainly it's basic to Freudian uh, thought, is unjustified uh, overall, or is it just unjustified in the context of setting policy? on like university campuses or within states or how do you think of the whole realm of psychology and its presuppositions? Well, I'm not really critiquing the whole realm of psychology. In fact, some of the best critical theorists come from psychology, um, come from within the discipline. Um, it's more the public use of these kinds of discourses and the way that they become institutionalized and mobilized by policymakers and used within understandings of broader social issues. Um, and I think actually this desire to, this kind of pessimism about the individual, pessimism about humanity, I mean, obviously it has lots of different roots. Um, mm -hmm. The 20th century did us no favors in this respect, right? I mean, right. you want to be pessimistic, just look at what happened. <laughs> and, right. and people, you know, just look at the Second World War, the Holocaust, this is what happens when human beings try to control history. That's the lesson that we took from that. But the mm -hmm. pessimism goes back further as well. You can see like at the, ver the very origins of sociology, not just psychology, sociology is mm -hmm. in this. Um, well, it's when I call it pessimism, it depends because it is it's it's not just wholly pessimistic or wholly opti optimistic. There is like even though people are pessimistic about human nature, they do have a side where they think that at least there is a side to some of these discourses where like, well, human beings can be reformed and the solution is to, to just reform human beings. Now, what I think happens is that over time, as the problems persist, if your underlying ideology or your underlying way of understanding problems is human frailty, and you try to develop some kind of intervention to fix people, but the problem carries on, if you don't question your underlying understanding, you will question continually human nature. You will just say, well, God, it's obviously because it's just human nature. Human beings simply are beyond repair. And you become more and more pessimistic about human beings. And I think that's partially what happens with some of these discourses that um, over time, because people are so convinced, there's it's just so ingrained, I think, in our culture. You ask anybody you know, well, why, why this issue? Oh, well, it's just human nature. So if the issue continues on, it just must mean, no matter what we do, it just must mean it's because human beings are, mm -hmm. are just fundamentally sick and weak. Instead of thinking like, well, hey, maybe it's something about our system in which human beings are living at the moment that tends to reproduce these problems and make some wicked issues and insoluble within the current framework, for example, of capitalism. Um, mm. So I think part of it, if you like, if you go all the way back, um, the optimism that followed the French Revolution was really quite short-lived. <laughs> so 
so there's this idea that like well you know human beings we can kind of we're capable of reason we're capable because we have reason we're capable of freedom and the free exercise no not all human beings right but <laughs> you know there's this kind of this idea that at least some human beings are capable of, of self-governance and all that sort of thing which is quite radical for its time and then almost immediately you had this kind of reaction and this pessimism that came in and this like return to nature and this idea of like human beings go are going too far within the sort of romantic reaction to the enlightenment and mm. So you had these two kinds of forces, and there was one force that came out of that, which was socialism and communism, particularly that influenced by Marx, mm. which was, but it, not just influenced by Marx, it was, you know, 1848 influenced by Marx and Engels, right? But he's not like, they were like leading everything. But mm. so there was these, there were these kinds of movements that said, well, no, look, the reason why we don't see these ideals of, uh, coming to fruition within society is because we need to have another revolution. We need to um, overthrow the vestiges of feudalism. We need to overthrow this new system um, that gives us a false sense of equality um, in order to, you know, fully realize these kinds of these promises, mm -hmm. the ability of human beings to self-determine and that kind of thing. And then that got pretty well destroyed. Um, and um, the 20th century obviously just drew, uh, drove the last nails in the coffin. And so all that's left is this kind of this, this kind of um, pessimism. But you can see that almost immediately. It was like, well, you know, the French Revolution promised liberty, equality, fraternity. When people looked out into the world, they saw the opposite. Mm -hmm. And you could explain that in a number of different ways. But one of the ways that people explained it at the time was, well, human difference. Well, why aren't all human beings? Why don't we see equality in the world? Well, because human beings are unequal. You know, white people are different than black people and women are just different than men. And that's why. And they've mm -hmm. just naturalized these things. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, in its harsh forms, that became race realism and scientific racism, which attempted to explain all of the inequalities in society on genetic bases or not genetic at the time, but um, on the basis of human difference ingrained in our biology. And then its kind orientation, it was culture. We have cultural differences and that's actually quite a good thing. We should celebrate that and so on. Um, and these were all parts of the what we what was what was the right wing early on after the French Revolution's kind of obsession with human difference and culture, um, and and later the biologization of these kinds of differences. And mm. it was the left that were saying, no, we have to move forward. We have to keep moving um, mm. in order to fully realize these things. They are realizable. Um, the human subject is an open subject. It's not. We're not determined in advance. With the death of these kinds of movements, the only explanation that's left is human difference, really. Mm. Um, and and then and so you have. I think the more that you attempt to solve problems at the individual level, the more that you fail. The more pessimistic you become. Mm. Well, let's talk about higher education because this this is you've you've sent me a chapter about uh, the change uh, in the aims of uh, universities. Um, and this is taking place in the context of this overall spiraling pessimism. Um, and you wrote that there's been a perceptible and general shift away from the more liberal ideas and ideals uh, that we were just talking about um, uh, that might be aligned with Marx, but are certainly aligned with the Enlightenment project. And, uh, you know, this idea that higher education is a broadly public good toward a more personalized and commercialized uh, as basically higher education being personalized and commercialized and to benefit individual students. And you said this shift toward more individualized and commercialized goals has fostered uh, 
the movement of therapeutic ideals into the heart of higher education. So I'm wondering how do you see the individualizing and commercializing of society, maybe broadly, but higher education particularly, uh, leading to the introduction of therapeutic ideals into education? Well, to be clear, you know, the role of the university in society has been subject to a lot of debate and different purposes have been put forward at different times. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's, it's not just like, that's what the university was about. Now it's about this. There's a lot right. of debate about that. So the bit that you're quoting from is just a, a bit of literature, not just, I mean, it's, it's some literature review about debates about the historical role and purpose of higher education. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, I think, there has been a shift from more, slightly more liberal ideals mm -hmm. associated with education toward more personalized commercial ideals. But that it's not like, again, it's not wholly, this is just what the university is about because higher education still, just like education in general, gets um, a lot of social problems kind of shunted onto it. So the responsibility for social issues um, becomes the role of the university beyond simply giving an education. You have to deal with broader social inequalities. Um, you, you know, um, deal with um, the shift away from industrial in, industrialization. You know, there's all sorts of agendas. That well, get one way that the, the the university is tasked with solving social problems by is by being a gatekeeper towards the professions. Yeah, and therefore a site for an, a need for diversification of the student body, in order to create equality, uh, at least amongst the professional classes, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like an example of of what they're tasked with doing. But I guess another uh, example would be they're tasked with protecting the students from um, mental illness that might be caused by the the, the university itself. Well, yeah, not just not just by the university, but by the broader problems of society, which I think mm -hmm. is interesting because um, over time you can kind of see that it's like, oh, well, uncertain job pro job prospects um, and a you know a life of debt and all of these things. These are problems for which therapeutic solutions are needed. It's not even like I'm going to solve this by making sure you get a good job. It's like, no, the job market is terrible. You're not going to get a good job. Ergo, you need this kind of therapeutic, uh, these kinds of therapeutic solutions. Now, there's a, a long, I don't want to be boring, sorry, um, but there's Does a long kind of complicated um, history to how mental health made its way onto the agenda. Um, so it's not, it's. Um, well, tell me, tell me about that. I mean, tell me about how it became mental health mm -hmm. uh, that on the agenda and the and so initially education. mental health made its way onto the uh, agenda um really you could go back to um the beginning of the 20th century um with the mental hygiene movement and the mental hygiene movement made its way into universities through people who made claims that um this sort of unseen um problem of mental hygiene among young people was the cause of all sorts of later social problems and like crazy connections were made things like well assassinating <laughs> we wouldn't have people assassinating prime ministers if we had just did something about mental hygiene and that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and there were some successful claims that uh, for instance if we took care of mental hygiene in university then um you would have a stronger military base um, so you're, you'd be able to draw on um, conscripts that would be 
good the make good soldiers and this kind of fed into the broader concern with the health of the population because you want a healthy population to draw them up to go to war for you so these kinds of claims were very powerful the very first ones anyway that kind of drew on these broader um civic not civic um broader um governmental concerns but over time you know more and more people began to sort of join in and say oh like well i have something also to offer to mental hygiene and mm -hmm. that's going to solve these sorts of problems and there's this quote from a 1930s text where it was like um uh, over time the butcher the baker and the candlestick maker all competed with each other to uh, claim that they were the ones to have do dominion over the mind of young people um the mental uh, the mental well-being of young people I've just been told I have a fly on my head. I don't see it. <laughs> um, anyway, so there was a lot. You don't, there was, you don't see a fly on my head, do you? No, I don't okay. see it. Some, maybe you have a fly on your screen, viewer. And <laughs> Yeah, that could be. Uh, and also, if you're saying my fly is down, you can't see that. So, you know, it happens to be the case, but that you can't tell. All right, enough. Uh, sorry, I feel like you're so with... privileged because now you have access to the comments of people and I don't. <laughs> uh, well, you, you can see them if you click in the There's a comment button in the corner. Oh. You can see them. But I can throw them on the screen. Okay. You I shouldn't what? even I... look at them. But, to be okay. fair, I just took one look and I thought, I actually do not want to see that. Yeah, right. I know. Right. It's distracting. But um, anyways, OK, saying, so then they had right. these um, these uh, it, it, mental hygiene is institutionalized at the beginning of the 20th century. So mm. already they were um, there were institutional sites. And when you have institutional sites, a new discourse, you have people who are in place who are hungry for a new discourse because they always have to renew their claims, renew their claims to the validity of their existence. They would say, oh, there's a big problem we're trying to solve. In fact, it's bigger than you imagine. We need more funding to survive. And I'm not, not just around mental health or self-esteem or whatever. This is a very common thing that happens when a, a discourse is institutionalized. Um, it creates a site within an institution. So new ideas are always going to go into that hub. Um, and that's how they kind of um, gain gain a foothold. Mm -hmm. So this is what happened. And they gradually became counseling services over time. So you had these um, counseling services, and then they start to organize into broad national networks. And so you have fixed lobbying organizations with an interest in ensuring that there's always attention to this. And in the 1990s, they, um, in the UK at least, they um, took hold of some legislation that had come through at that time to argue that universities had a duty of care to students and in particular in particular um, students with disabilities which they interpreted to mean also mental health issues um, to uh, protect their their mental health um, lest they they fail in their duty of care and and this left them open to being sued so um, what these claims makers did was they drew upon um, the university, the higher education sector as a community of fate. So whatever happens, if something bad happens to the whole sector um, or to one institution, it affects the whole sector because it's like, oh, well, universities are failing their duty of care. They don't care about students, blah, blah, blah. This is quite bad mm -hmm. for them. So universities were really on board right away in the 1990s about this idea of like doing more, spending more on counseling, spending more on 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 um, mental health. And then um, these organizations, um, there was this concern going into the early 2000s that the um, it was too top down. 
that it was within the institution, you had the VCs were all on board with, um, you know, more counseling services. I remember, I think it was like quite early on when I started at Swansea, I remember sitting at in one of these like big meetings because I was leading this um, mm -hmm. thing for the college. So I had to go to like a VCs meeting with all the big shots, you know, mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, we just need to let go of this idea that the university is about knowledge. It's not about knowledge. It's about well-being. And I was really shocked by that. And I just, I was sitting there and I was like, you really got the idea that they thought the university would be a great place if not for all these pesky academics who just ruin everything. Like, it's just like a holding area for young uh, people. We like mm -hmm. mold them into like, well, citizens. So is every every class would be a therapy session? Is that basically what I, it would be? I, I thought it was very, because like learning difficult things, it's difficult. And if you have like really high and tough academic standards, this is that's hard to live up to um, and students might drop out that kind of thing. And that's bad for the institution because they want money <laughs> um, and they and also it looks bad on league tables if you have too many students dropping out. So they are really interested in student retention um, and they have like the last little bits of an interest in maintaining academic standards, obviously, because it's bad for the sector. Um, but the incentive is to give high grades and not to push people, because if you do, you're going to push them out of the institution looks bad on you, you lose money, it's it's not a good thing. So they, these groups, they kind of drew on that and they got the institutions on board really early on. And then they started to, um, claims makers, I think a really key moment came when they um, uh, sought out like a, a bottom-up kind of approach. So they really encouraged young people in the universities to take hold of this discourse and to set up their own groups and they um, university spent a lot of money kind of funding these these sorts of things at the same the student, time there were, student organizations right yeah student organizations and so there were some student organizations whose main goal was to go around the um the uk getting other universities to set up student mental health organizations and, and they would get funding from the university yeah to, to do, do that. that and not just from the university but from also um, special interest groups, um, trusts, charitable trusts, um, all sorts of claims makers with an interest in, in keeping that in lobbying around this particular issue. Now, of course, like a lot of the young people who got involved, they did so because it gave them a sense of meaning and purpose. And you can see that across a lot of the discourse and some of the people that um, I interviewed, we interviewed as part of a, another project connected to this one, um, that you didn't really see like a lot of success stories in the sense of people like no longer having mental health issues. Success stories were people who made mental health into it, um, into their mission and their purpose and their job. Um, so that for a lot of these young people, they went on to become um, leaders um, in, in organizations around student mental health as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the university had a, a dual interest in um, encouraging students to be involved in mental health. One, they were concerned that if there, see, these, the, the lobby groups, the counseling lobby groups, their interest was just in pushing up as much funding as possible for professional counseling. Um, but it's expensive. <laughs> it's it's quite expensive to have like enough counselors on staff. And they were really lobbying hard to ensure that no, they would say like, no problem, no matter how small, take it to the mental health services, take it to counseling. Um, and they really problematized the idea that students would rely on their own networks and their friends and their families when they have problems. Right. They were like, no, if you do this, it's going to fester and it can become a problem. Anyway, so they were really lobbying hard to ensure that students accessed the services that were there. And the universities were concerned that if this got out of control, they wouldn't be able, it would just be 
not co um, cost effective. Now, I think the more powerful ones were quite happy to keep investing in it because they were um, through regulatory capture, they would push their competitors to overinvest um, mm. where they could they could afford it, right? And then they could um, advertise, oh, we have all this investment in counseling and professional mm. counselors. Anyway, so they want what they wanted to do is they wanted to utilize um, peer support, so um, uh, student mental health, uh, sorry, student uh, mental health first aid training and things like that. Um, to get um, young people kind of uh, involved in giving mental health support, because obviously that would be, it's more cost effective, but also it spreads the risk out. Um, and they wanted to spread the risk across basically the institution, it seems to me anyway. Um, I don't think they consciously wanted to like, oh, we got to spread this risk. So they knew that they had in their hands a lot of risk if students, for example, um, commit suicide. It looks really bad on the institution. And so they wanted to ensure that like, anybody around these students also were taking responsibility like if someone was having issues you know an academic should pick it up or mm. and but everybody's kind of shirking this risk off because nobody wants it it's one of the interesting things that i found in the interviews was like risk was a big issue for people mm. that were involved in these initiatives especially um academics they were like i don't think the university knows the kind of risk that we're holding because if i i miss my an email and I'm supposed to be responsible for this. And I'm responsible if something goes wrong, something really bad goes wrong. Um, and the university doesn't want that either. So there's a whole part of this story as well that is around um, risk management. But anyways, getting mm -hmm. students involved is a really big part of it. Um, and they got um, a lot of support that trustees were members of these um, uh, counseling services, overarching bodies. So there was a lot of connection between um, these lobby groups and these claims makers and, this, and the students. Um, and then this big moment came when they started to work with the National Union of Students who put together this um, survey, they, a series of surveys in 2013, um, starting in 2013 that claimed very, very, very high rates of mental ill health among students. Um, mm. And that really is what put it on the agenda. Well, um, when you talk about risk management, it, it makes me think about uh, when I worked at a physician's answering service, I think the medical industry overall right now, actually, it's funny that the university should be similar to the medical industry, but um, uh, is it tries to mitigate risk. And when I worked at a physician's answering service, one of the things that was emphasized was that we were not qualified to assess the risk of the call or the severity of the call or whether it was an emergency or not. And that was all shoved onto the, um, the patient themselves. So, mm -hmm. If they called up and said, I'm having chest pains and I'm, I'm seeing spots and I can't stand up, we would say, do you consider that to be an emergency? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, and it's interesting uh, because they'll like they'll shirk the risk onto the NHS. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's this explosion of all kinds of things ostensibly for mental health. But mm -hmm. if, if it's like, oh, but for severe mental health problems you go to the nhs and the nhs is like no 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 for severe mental health problems you go to the university nobody wants to actually deal with these sorts of things partially right. because they probably can't <laughs> like they there are certain things that you know their treatments don't have high rates of efficacy it's quite complicated it's very expensive um mm. so they're just kind of pushing these problems back and forth onto each other right they drum up an interest in the university as a way to handle and, and get a, uh, you know, mental illness and to achieve mental hygiene. And then of course they can't actually uh, 
fulfill their own promises there. So they no, they, they and they they actually create additional issues as well, and that's part of it, right? Because they recast a huge range of human emotion as a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. So that's how they managed to claim enormous rates of mental ill health was they asked these these questions on surveys where it was like literally any negative emotion whatsoever was defined as mental distress. And then in the in their claims making, they would and they would often even in the, the survey, in the results of the survey, when they released it to the press, they went back and forth between like they would say, oh, to the student, they would ask. Do, have you experienced any of these in the last however in year or something like that? And then in the discussion, they would talk about symptoms. Students had experienced these symptoms instead mm-hmm. of feelings, right? right and literally right. any negative feeling was listed, was which is symptom. amazing. So 92% of students had experienced a range of negative feelings ranging from like, um, oh, I can't remember, like severe depression to like feeling down. <laughs> In the past year, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but like mm-hmm. I feel down monthly. <laughs> really? That's all? <laughs> Being a woman, that's what happens. <laughs> oh, I see. I got you. <laughs> um, the idea that 8% of people don't feel down monthly at like, or didn't feel down at all for the past year, I found really amazing, actually. Right, um, yeah. So they, so they managed to write eliding a huge range of human emotion with like negative uh, with um, symptoms of mental distress implying that these were medical things they um, created very high rates of mental Ill health and what's interesting about it is that it appeared to be a kind of a predetermined conclusion because in the press release for the 2013 um, uh, survey they did ask a question that was based on diagnosis initially they asked um, have you been diagnosed with a mental health condition or are you seeking diagnosis or do you think you have one and that produced a, a result of 20% of students which is just so ever so slightly lower than the, the rate in the general population for the same age group mm. um, so they actually did ask that um, and then they produced this 92% figure of like symptoms of mental distress. <laughs> right. Um, and then the next survey, they did away with that because I imagine that that 20% figure was probably pretty disappointing because it's, mm. it was less than the general population. But in the, in the press release for that 2013 survey, they had all of these claims makers from um, mental health organizations saying, well, we know that university is bad for mental health. We know that it's a huge risk factor. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> Even in your like self-report study, which we know self-report studies tend to over overestimate. Even that produced a lower figure than um, than the general population. So they assumed yeah. that the university was a pressure cooker. And it's the same thing um, with the claims that eventually came up around suicide. Um, and so it was like this epidemic of, of suicides and so on. Actually, um, it's about half the general the rate in the general population for the same age group um so alternative headlines could have been go to university <laughs> it'll have your risk for suicide right, um, right um but there once you have these kinds of lobby groups in place they're in a position to frame these kinds of statistics in in the form of claims for more um more spending more intervention and so on um and that's so they have an interest in expanding the purview of mental health to include all these sorts of things. And what I started out saying was that they've kind of created an issue there because now young people will have been told 
Like it is your responsibility as a good citizen to like be constantly thinking about your mental state and to be looking for signs of illness, which is negative kinds of feelings and to go to a professional. But when they do that, they can't. So they are told they can't and should not rely on themselves or their networks, that that's quite bad and dangerous. Literally, that's the most common claim across the sample that I looked at in the media was um, you have to seek professional help. But then when they do, they can't. (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, but this then becomes fuel for more claims about more spending and the university kind of tries to push back. Um, And that's kind of the situation that we're in at the moment. So other than... Mm. Um, sorry, I should, I should, I'm so sorry. I meant to say the the situation we're in at the moment where we are trying to embed now mental health in the institution and change the role of the institution. However, it's not, I don't want to overstate it. It's not a huge thing. Like now this is the role of the institution, but they're trying more and more to embed it in the institution as a way of kind of trying to push back against this ever escalating claim for more and more and more and more spending and more intervention. So then this has a gradual effect on the curriculum and on our delivery and on, um, you know, what we do around deadlines, all these sorts of things. So it start, that's how it starts to have an effect on the role of the university. If we step back from the, the claims that are being made, in other words, if we don't take it seriously that this really has anything to do with trying to create uh, mental hygiene or health or self-esteem or happiness... Um, and we just say, you know, ultimately, institutionally, maybe not in terms of people's perceptions, but institutionally, that's not what's going on. What is the, uh, how is it functional for universities to be transformed in this way? And, uh, uh, you know, um, I would think that you would want a highly educated, uh, competent, knowledgeable citizenry in order to have your economy function in order to, like you said earlier, have uh, good soldiers, um, mm-hmm. to have employees that could follow instructions and so on. And if everyone who shows up to work is worried that they're about to have a mental health crisis or a, a breakdown, that's going to be uh, dysfunctional for society at large. So how is it functional for the institution to take that role, do you think? Um, well, for one thing, I mean, the people who graduate with this kind of new forms of emotional uh, knowledge and emotion commodities really and these new emotion skills are in demand in a huge range of institutions um like there's that's I, i feel like a lot of the therapeutic culture um and the the therapeutic industries just sort of sop up an excess of university graduates um and they become regulators of other people's emotions. Um, And the second thing is that one thing that people often argue is that what these discourses do is they create ideal neoliberal subjects who self-govern and don't call on expensive supports and so on. So obviously that's not what's going on here because they're being instructed expressly to call on um, Mm -hmm. uh, expensive supports and also told that they cannot Um, self-govern. But what they part of what I think is going on is that they offer a kind of regulatory framework for everyday life. And it creates people who think it is, or ideally, ideally it would create, I'm not saying it actually does, but ideally it would create a citizen who constantly is looking for a regulatory framework. It's not that they're capable of self-governing, they just have it, they know what to do, and they, they self-govern and they behave in the right ways. They're always looking for rules 
about how to deal with their emotions. So a lot of like how it resolves within the university is like embedding in the curriculum. It's like, oh, you have all of these skills that you can use. And when you have a bad day, you can do this. You can breathe in this way. And you can scream right. to a pillow. So like everyone's it. getting cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> yeah. Reframe and, your, your thoughts, reframe your emotions. Re, uh, and so that you can cope better with everyday life. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you can't do that. You have to go to a therapist in order to be trained properly anyhow. Um, and you can't but... really, you can never, you're never cured, right? You're, it's, you're, it's like a constant thing. It's like, um, it's in the, it's becomes part of your life course that that's what you do. And in university, you seek out these supports. And then when you go to work, you seek out these supports and you're always, it's not like, like all of the idea we have in, in our culture and sort of therapeutic culture is we have this sense that we're supposed to, it's good to like emote and express your emotions freely and bottling up is bad for you. But it's not just like any emotion should be expressed freely. You should express the emotion so that you can then bring it back to a script that you're supposed to follow. So like, it's not like, oh, we, we love like therapy, therapeutic culture doesn't love emotion. doesn't like, um, it's, it doesn't like anger, for example, unless it's like righteous anger dire directed at particular sources. So it's always, you're always invited to bring your emotions back to a particular script. And a lot of what people do, a lot of the people that we spoke to, which I found surprising was they, they basically develop these scripts. They develop like regulatory frameworks for everyday life. And it's not just like in the area of emotion that this happens. Um, so there was, uh, I was talking to a colleague at another university and um, he was saying that he had worked in, um, and I had had kind of similar experiences or observations, but he'd worked in employability, um, developing these employability modules. So classes in how to be employable. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to teach these classes too. And I, I thought they were all right because, you know, I, I saw it as my role to like bring young people into adulthood um, and to teach them how to, you know, get on in the workplace and like mm -hmm. they, they had a work placement and it was like just gradually bringing people into the world of adults. I thought that was quite good. Mm -hmm. um, and he, and then I left this behind. And some years later, I went back and I was talking to this. I, I went to um, like a, this conference uh, about these people who all work in this area. And he was saying to me um, that, yeah, he had started an employability module with a placement. And over time, he gave it to someone else. And over time, what happened was they students now source their own placements and what the university gives is a framework where they go and do their placement which they source themselves they found themselves and then they have to write about their experiences by reflecting on their feelings <laughs> sort of thing um within the um within like these um employability skills and attributes of the good professional and they just have to basically follow this framework that's given and so the university doesn't actually even give anything which you know, I thought that was great, like unique kind of placements. That was our selling point. And I was still selling this stuff. And I think we still do it. But it gradually, we, even we are starting to move toward that kind of um, that. Explain uh, that to me, because I think I'm, I'm missing a step here. So the original, um, when you talk about placement, you mean that you were helping, the instructors were helping students find places to apply for jobs and mm. be placed in employment? Sorry, I'm or? using of UK terminology and also I'm trying to avoid throwing my own university under the bus mm. so, <laughs> so I was being a bit cagey about it so essentially um, a placement is um, work experience mm. so universities will develop 
um, and this is what we do at, at Swansea, we develop relationships with um, employers in the community, um, volunteer and charitable organizations, you know, a huge range of potential employers mm. for our social science graduates. And um, so each year they will take a certain number of students. And so what I would do is I would prepare the students who ne never having like professional graduate level employment before, we'd do like a little boot camp camp to prepare them and then they would do a 10 week placement. And we would source these placements for them. So they would have a job for 10 weeks. For 10 weeks, yeah. With one of these employers. And then after that so they, they could get credit in the university. It was a class. So they would get right. 20 credits for that. And then after that they could use those skills on a resume and maybe get hired somewhere else or even get hired by one of these places. That took yeah. And they would develop all sorts of contacts. We had lots of great success stories. Students would mm. get jobs at these places afterward. But and, yeah. What you're telling is that later on, no, you didn't get the, that relationship set up by the university. You had to go out and find it yourself. You, find it yourself. you just were be given like some material to use to evaluate how you were doing. Yeah on your own yeah we still we still have these relationships with the university thank god but I, what i was shocked by but we are sort of moving toward that as well we do have a we encourage students to self-source which is fine but i saw mm -hmm. that in other universities the move now is totally to self-source because it's a lot of work like we had to hire someone full-time just to source placements source employers because you have to keep the relationships fresh you have to go in and do health and safety stuff it's it's mm -hmm. a lot of work and it's expensive and so what the university will do gradually is they stop providing the service, the thing you actually mm -hmm. want from the institution. But they'll provide you a, a, the a, framework. A, a emotional therapeutic framework. by which No, it's not judge. even, this is just another example. I mean, mm, okay. the emotional aspect is that it's supposed to be reflective and all this stuff, but it's just another example of how the university will big itself up. The institute, like, the sector will big itself up as being able to do something because they're huge. They got lots of money and resources. They're going to give you all these, they've got all these connections. They're going to give mm. you unique opportunities. And then when you get there, you do it yourself and they give you a framework. And there are people who, whose job it is just write these stupid frameworks. And that's what happened gradually. I think with, um, with some of these therapeutic things, it's the same kind of, um, it's a very common thing within the regulatory state or regulatory capitalism that the state is supposed to be like this big thing that can do all this stuff, mobilize resources, lots of money, get a canal dug. And increasingly they retract that they, they move away from that. And instead they provide a guide work and a framework for what someone else will do. Um, and interestingly, like this, the institution doesn't get any smaller. You just have more and more people <laughs> writing up these frameworks and mm -hmm. they, less and less hmm. um so uh that that i feel like we could spend an entire episode just on that uh question yeah, it's really interesting if anyone's interested yeah. there's a whole area of um research on regulatory capitalism and that um mm -hmm. starting with thatcherism in the 80s starting regulatory capitalism starting with thatcher yeah. See, that that's like <laughs> counterintuitive right the mm -hmm. whole idea of thatcherism is it was deregulatory yeah, right. yeah, but actually, right. it, it increased regulation, um, right. and that the size of the state increased as well in in some ways. It just it the the role of the state changes from actually doing something to providing all sorts of, of frameworks and regulations for how other people will do things. If you want an interesting example of this, there's a good paper by Lee Jones and uh, I can't remember the first name of the second author. Something um, apologies, uh, Hameri, um, but on on COVID nineteen and the failure of the regulatory state, where it, um, you probably have heard 
that the United States and the UK ranked very highly on pandemic preparedness <laughs> um, before the pandemic. So someone put together a really good PowerPoint, a really good report, which is actually <laughs> really common, I think, in institutions. You have people who are just so good at making plans for what other people will do. And they get their promotions, they move on, and they go up, 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 up in management, and they leave behind freaking devastation <laughs> in their wake because people are like, I got to execute this plan, but I don't have the resources to do it. But they, someone said that I was going to do it. And this is what happened, I think, with, with COVID-19. You know what I'm reminded of is safety committees. Yeah, yeah. On on the job. So you, you're supposed to have like live up to a certain uh, regulation and standard for uh, safety on the job. And instead of having uh, someone like the employer or some uh, somebody who's assigned the task and given a budget uh, and renovating, say, you're given you, you get a pool of employees to go uh, join the safety committee and their job is to go around the workspace looking for safety violations and writing them up right mm -hmm. and then turning that in and then i think that's the end of the road i don't think anything actually you know like you know there's nobody there's no budget for it so if like you find a, a paper cutter that has you know no guard well note that mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> the safety committee knows about it but that doesn't change anything um mm -hmm. um so Anyhow. yeah, it's like people who basically they they direct who's going to pull levers, and the levers aren't attached to anything would be like a good <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah, for it. yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, but it gives the impression that something is being done, um, and it and it does take up time. Um, well, so I mean, this is going to lead to my last question. It's like it seems like a quite a lot of what goes on in the name of uh, mental hygiene or mental health or self-esteem or uh, uh, what was the other one? Mindfulness um, is, you know, detrimental in the, in, to the extent that it, it gets people to spend time and money to move levers that don't attach to anything. Mm -hmm. Right. But does it do more than that? Is it actually damaging in some way? Does it, do, I guess because the resources are being misdirected, it's damaging, but is it, is it creating, are we now more vulnerable than we would have if we hadn't tried to deal with our mental health issues in the university. I think probably at worst, at its worst, it encourages excessive self-attention. And um, I always use this example, but you know, I, I remember what it was like in university and I was like young and confused. And, like, um, and it was a hard, it was a difficult time. It was legitimately very difficult. Um, but what's interesting is that um, I remember I saw in some of the early articles that I was looking at early like, newspaper discourses, um, people like student groups were trying to say like they, they the NUS had teamed up with like a schizophrenia, schizophrenia lobby group for some reason. And the schizophrenia lobby group was trying to say that schizophrenia is like super widespread in universities. They'd probably done something with the numbers where they kind of redefined it in more loose terms they often do that to create bigger numbers just trying to raise awareness um that kind of thing and um the uh, university doctors as they were called at the time said we're like no <laughs> um the problems that you have at university are situational and they tend to pass afterward um and now the idea that you would say that is just crazy um that mm -hmm. 
this is this is a hard time and it, it's the best of times it's the worst of times <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that and and that's what being young is about and instead you kind of are encouraged to really put a lot of weight on that and I think I and I remember this was starting even when I was young in Gur mm -hmm. <laughs> University um, I remember that I started to kind of imbibe this discourse and I I do remember thinking like I will never get over these issues until I can find a professional to help me and what mm -hmm. sat me out of that and like I had a very difficult upbringing and I had like it was it was hard for me also to like self-regulate because I didn't have parents or anything from a very young age and so I had lots of lots of difficulties like serious legitimate difficulties mm -hmm. and what and I started to kind of um not rely on myself and started to believe that I could not rely on myself and that actually these problems that I had were not situational were not understandable because of what I had been through but were part of my brain <laughs> and I could recognize why I wanted to believe that because it was like it's not you it's your brain like, mm -hmm. <laughs> um it's not and you're like oh it's not me it's not my fault it's not some shortcoming that I have but actually I found you know what snapped me out of that as I was saying was you know, coming across this whole history of the development of these discourses and, and where they come from and what they invite us to do. And that this is not the only way of understanding your life and your emotions and your relationships to other people and your relationships to the outer world. Um, mm -hmm. And when I started, when I stopped being so self-attuned, you know, thinking about my emotions all the time, thinking about myself all the time, and I began to become involved in projects beyond myself, a lot of these problems dissipated and also the idea that i actually could overcome them myself and that it would be very hard and i would often find it impossible but that i could do mm. my will and mm. i think the the danger is that we can disempower people um by claiming that it is uh wrong uh, even dangerous to rely on oneself and on one's own networks that you always need to be looking for some other to provide you guidance um, I think that's the worst that could happen. On the other hand, like I do recognize that um, uh, these kinds of informal relationships that we have are important and they're falling away. And sometimes the mental health discourse encourages people to come to me, like as a lecturer, for example, um, to come to me and talk to me. Like I don't have mental health training. I'm a human <laughs> who has been through things myself. And I can talk to you and we need to be able to reach out to people and have relationships and to come out of a black hole of atomization and isolation, which we are increasingly finding ourselves in, which is not good for us just as human beings because we are social beings. Um, and so in that sense, it's, it has been good. Like, I don't want to say this is all bad. Mm -hmm. like, um, I think it's, it's not necessary to medicalize these sorts of things but if it mm -hmm. allows people to reach out to each other that's good what the problem is when it tells people that they shouldn't <laughs> that they shouldn't reach right. out to each other and that mm -hmm. this is you know when you come your friend comes to you with i see this online someone comes to you with a problem like oh i don't want to do the emotional labor like <laughs> that's not my job like it's someone it has to be someone's job the, the nice way to say that is not i don't want to do the emotional labor you're taxing me and you're hurting me but that does get said. But the, the 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 polite way to say it is, this is above my pay grade. I'm not qualified to help you. I uh, you don't let me have give to you a point to deal with somebody's like, you know, to deal with a friend. Um, and the, the like, I don't know. Maybe me and my friends were just crazy, but like, we had like serious. Like, I think that's the conclusion for this whole conversation. <laughs> is that you and your friends were just crazy? Listen, we've been talking for an hour. 
That was a terrible what? place to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for the second part, uh, the uh, for the second half for patrons, um, uh, which will be released later today, uh, do you have time to stick around for like yeah, yeah, yeah. 30, 40 minutes? Um, why don't we just talk about like the death of the subject and this kind of more academic and and we'll uh, of course we'll devolve into chitter chatter, I'm sure, but um, so people won't, won't be bored. Uh, but I'm going to end it here. Um, and we were on Twitch. We have five people watching, and we can say goodbye to all five of them now. I think that it's Gene and like four more of the soccer. No, it's puppets. five fans. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs>